Hello, this is Everwonder from the California Science Center. I'm Perry Roth Johnson. So if you've been listening to the past couple episodes on robots, you've heard about a few kinds of robots that might challenge your view of what counts as a robot. The field of robotics has changed a lot over the past couple of decades. And part of that has to do with advances in the fields of computer science and artificial intelligence. Algorithms that help robots function and interact with the world are all around us, from the search engines we use to the facial recognition function in our phones. But these algorithms can have problems. This past September, for example, Twitter users discovered that photo previews, which use machine learning to crop photos to the most interesting part, appeared to favor white faces over black faces. We know that humans aren't perfect, but do you ever wonder if robots can be biased? To find out more, I talked to Ayana Howard, a roboticist, professor, and chair of the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech. She is a leader in the field and has many accomplishments, but one area of her work that caught our eye is her research on how algorithms and robots can be biased. Let's get into it. All right, Professor Anna Howard, you're a roboticist and professor at Georgia Tech, where you're the chair of the School of Interactive Computing. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm excited about this conversation. I am too. We're really, we're really pleased to have you with us. Maybe we'll start on, on a fun note. Okay. What's your favorite robot? Rosie, of course. Rosie from the Jetsons? Rosie from the Jetsons. And, <laughs> okay. and, and I'll explain why. Um, mm-hmm. So Rosie epitomizes what I think about robotics. Um, something, a machine that interacts with us, that understands us, uh, that is almost essential to enhancing our quality of life. But at the end of the day, uh, if, if anyone remembers Rosie, if you did something wrong, she would tell you off, right? And so <laughs> I think, you know, she, she made the family a better family. Does a robot uh, need to be something that has mechanical components like a Rosie, a Mars Rover, or the robot dogs made by Boston Dynamics that are in all those viral videos? Or are voice assistants like Alexa, Siri, or Google Assistant robots too? Yeah, so the definition of robot has evolved. And I would claim that an intelligent agent, intelligent voice assistant like Siri, um, is a robot. And I'll explain why. So if you think about what a robot needs to do, uh, a robot has to be able to sense the environment. Uh, Siri understands voices, so that's an aspect of sensing the environment. They have to then have a brain to process this information, uh, which voice assistants do. They take your voice and they look at, oh, what is it that you want me to do? But what's key and why I would say a, a virtual agent is also a robot is that they have to do a what I would call a physical action, something that allows us to interact. So playing music. Think about it, it's, it's replacing a physical action. So typically we go to the radio, we turn the station. Just because they do it in a virtual format versus a physical format, the output is still the same. We have to figure out the volume, we have to figure out the station. It's sensing the environment, processing based on that environment, and then creating a, a function that impacts the physical world in some way or form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Would you say uh, that was true many years ago, like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, or has our notion of robotics changed over time? Our notion of robotics has changed. So when I started in this field uh, more than 15 years ago, 
Um, there was ro roboticist, which I was, and then there was this whole field of artificial intelligence. And as a roboticist, I used AI. So I used neural networks and computer vision, but I never called myself a, an AI person. Um, and it was because back then, uh, roboticists and the things that we could do um, were really about the physical components and the hardware and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe getting AI to work and it didn't work almost ever. Uh, whereas, whereas, whereas AI was really, um, the computation wasn't necessarily there. So I would say that the kinds of tasks that they were attacking were really about fundamental knowledge. And that's evolved because computation has gotten much better, which means that you can do all of those fundamental things that you used to just dream about. And you can do them with robotics as, as the component or the entity. And so the field has those two, robotics and AI, have blended together quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So it, it sounds like the hardware and the software have really become deeply integrated and those fields of study are deeply intersecting right now. They're deeply integrated, they're deeply intersecting. And even the concept of hardware, right? It's, it's this aspect of a self-driving car. Is it really a car or is it just a AI system that happens to have wheels, right? And so <laughs> I love it's, that. It's, it's, this, it's this blend, yes. Mm -hmm. In your view, how do robots have the potential to help people um, or maybe even harm people if they're not designed properly? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the, the first part of that, which is help. And I'll, I usually link it to quality of life. Um, so these are the things that we are accustomed to that we think are almost our rights. So a lot of us believe that every child should be educated. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't really think about the fact that, well, maybe there are some environments that don't have teachers or don't have access to the internet to log on to courses online. Um, and so what robotics does is it, it fills those roles where um, you, you might have a person there if you had that access and resource and, and robots provide it, provides that access and, and levels the playing field. And so this is in education, it's in healthcare, um, and it's in access, transportation, and, and these functions of life um, are the helping part. Now, the harm is that if our systems aren't created with thinking about the unique natures of people, mm -hmm. it also means that there could be a potential of harm. And I'll give an example of healthcare. Uh, women, as an example, exhibit signs of heart attacks a little differently than, than men. Um, and for years, there wasn't the wealth of studies. And so think about, I'm designing a robot, a healthcare robotic system that's at the hospital. A patient comes in and it quickly tries to triage, you know, is this person having a heart attack or whatever? And it's designed based on this data that has how people are supposed to exhibit. Basically, women would die, right? Because it just it wouldn't mm -hmm. have that data. And mm -hmm. so that's where the harm happens is because you replace these functions with robots assuming that it's going to be perfect, but it's not if it's based on bad data. What you just described was in one of the papers that you co-wrote in 2017, the ugly truth about ourselves and our robot creations, the problem of bias and social inequity. And in addition to this medical example, you talked about uh, search engines delivering job postings for well-paying tech jobs to men and not women, facial recognition systems having problems identifying non-white faces, and these problems still continue. Just last month, Facebook announced that it's going to study whether its algorithms are racially biased. What, what is 
uh, algorithmic bias, uh, this idea that technology might have bias? So algorithmic bias is that, um, and, and it's not, and I wouldn't say technology, but the decisions that come out of the technology mm. um, have different outcomes for different classes of individuals. Um, and so that's really with this aspect of bias. Um, and, and so just so you know, bias is not always bad. That's the problem. Mm. As an example, um, you know, my dosage as a woman for medication should be different than a guy, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, that's an aspect of bias. You shouldn't give the same kind of dosage to uh, two individuals gender-wise. We know this. Mm -hmm. um, so bias isn't always bad, but when the outcomes are different because you belong to a certain group or have a group membership, then there's this algorithmic bias, and that's really the definition. And the bias is in a, a couple of things. It's it's in the, the data that's being used to train, it's in the design of the parameters you put into the system, and it's also even in the how you define your outputs and how you define your outcomes, right? And so a lot of these biases um, are, some of this is based on you know us as developers, some of it is based on society because of the past decisions we've made uh, that you know we eventually realize you know, we were wrong but we have so much data that has this kind of, you know, archaic viewpoint that's being mm -hmm. used and trained because it's available. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yeah, it's a problem when it impacts um, the decisions in, in terms of our lives, or our livelihoods. Mm -hmm. One way you're describing that technology can maybe not become biased, but have these poor outcomes that are, that are uh, unequally uh, handed out to different groups is because of the data set that might be biased because it has a lot of past ideas embedded in that data. I've, I've heard many experts talk about this notion of de-biasing data sets. Is that possible? Is that sufficient to, to fix the problem? It, it's not sufficient. Um, and it's just one part of a, a possible solution. Um, mm -hmm. And so as an example, I have a data set and I create a system that de-biases, quote unquote de-biases. Well, there's a developer that is creating an algorithm to do the debiasing that says, I want to look at, say, age, or I want to look at gender, or I want to look at um, ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? I have just biased the algorithm. So maybe it's debiased for those groups, but is it debiased with respect to US versus a you know European or Oceana viewpoint? Is it uh, debiased with respect to um, LGBTQ plus is it right? Like so, it's it's never going to be fully debiased. It's only going to be debiased based on whatever the developer thinks is bias. Mm -hmm. so, so it's only one part of the equation. Got it. And and the other thing coming to mind is the person writing the program intending to debias the original program also brings their own biases. So like how many. Uh, <laughs> layers of this do we have to go until we get to an acceptable level of equity in the results? Yeah, and and it's and and just like if you think about the way we do it in society, uh, the problem is is that it takes a lot of um, inequities, right, and mm -hmm. the accumulation of inequities before you know we as a society look back and like, oh, I guess we messed up, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's typically what happens. Um, I I actually believe that with AI, we can do better. 
But what I, why do I say that? I think we can accelerate that. Like for us, it might take a generation before we realize that, oh, you know, housing accommodations has bias. But with an AI system, I mean, imagine that it can process all the top different parameters and possibilities. And instead of taking 10 years, it can do it in an hour, right? And then say, oh, by the way, guess what? If we project 10 years from now, this is what's going to be the outcome. What do you want to do about that? Like, mm -hmm. I think we can think about it a little differently when we think about trying to mitigate bias in AI. Mm -hmm. Is is another part of that uh, something else you've you've written and talked about is we tend to trust answers from robots more than from other humans. Uh, unpack that for me a little bit. We do. Give me an example. Um, I so what we have found, and this is in uh, a number of uh, my my research with, with in my lab with my students is that when um, an AI system uh, provides guidance on a decision, um, individuals, humans, will, will kind of say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'll follow your guidance, even if they had a different answer before. Uh, and I'll give you a good example. There was a study, this, this was out of a different group, where they looked at search results. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, you know, think about it. How many of you guys, when you do your search result, actually go to the second page? Right, you, you look yeah. at the first answer. I mean, none of us do. You know, mm -hmm. the most we might do is scroll down five or six. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the most we'll do. Um, and so there was a group that did a study that basically a large majority of individuals choose the first two options on their search results as truth, right? And they, it's not like they come back and then choose the fourth or fifth or sixth. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they did is that they took the answers at the bottom of the page and they reversed the order. Oh. And guess what? They still took the first two. And, and, <laughs> and, and what's even interesting is that afterwards, they, uh -huh. they were asking like, well, did you see, you know, did it, did it match your expectations? Most of them, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase, would say, oh, well, I put in the search criteria incorrectly, oh. i.e. internalizing the blame because, of course, the AI system is perfect. So it must have been my fault. Oh, wow. Which again, it goes with this aspect of, of overtrust. We believe in these AI systems. We believe that they are, um, I, I won't say smarter, but that they have more knowledge. Uh, mm -hmm. And therefore what they say is probably truth. And, and in my own experiments, uh, we have validated this as well. Hmm. How did you get interested in this particular facet of your field, bias in AI? Yeah. So uh, interesting enough, I'm, I'm an electrical engineer, right? That, that was my, my background, my training. Uh, I did a minor in computer science. I was not a cognitive scientist. I was not a psychologist. That mm -hmm. was like far from my, my even purview. Um, but when I started working with uh, designing robots for children with special needs, it was therapy robots for the home. What I had to do was I had to develop models of how people behave. Um, it's a mathematical model, right? So you collect data, you create these structures. I mean, it's a human, but you have to be able to predict behavior. And so you do these mathematical models. And um, one of our very first studies, it was with um, children with autism, and we were looking at um, outcomes in terms of behavior therapy. And what I found is that there was a difference between the outcomes for the girls versus the boys. Now, these were, were, were fairly young kids, which, of course, makes no sense, right? You're like, wait, it's a robot. It's kids. What's going right. on? Like, 
it just, it was like, and so like a good scientist, you, you try to kind of figure out, you know, what are the confounding factors? Maybe it's the, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I discovered that um, when we were collecting data to create these systems and to train these systems, we were going into the clinics, we were doing observations. And the fact is, is that uh, boys are diagnosed at a higher rate for autism. And so when we looked at that data that we were learning from, it was basically, it wasn't, it wasn't kids in general and clinicians, it was boys and clinicians. And, and, and mm. we didn't even think about it because when we were looking at the outcomes and the interventions, that's when we cared about making sure that we had gender distribution and age distribution. Mm-hmm. But the learning was just like, we're just collecting data. So, right? We're just collecting. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to change it. Just go in the clinic. Um, and I realized then that if this is something that impacts me and I, I self-identify as a woman, mm-hmm. and if this happened and I am very thoughtful about this, mm-hmm. then imagine what our systems are doing that are out there when you have um, individuals who maybe aren't aware or just aren't, aren't, aren't as concerned. Um, yeah, and so I thought I needed to, yeah, not as careful. And, and so I, I, I figured that it was my role to do this. And also I'm an engineer. I like hard problems. Mm-hmm. And this was like one of the hardest problems I could actually see at that time. I was like, oh yeah, we are going to try to attack this one. And so picking up on that, I just want to jump back into one section of your paper for a minute. Um, so it seemed like the first half of this paper was describing a lot of examples of harms uh, that bias and AI systems have led to. And the second half was considering a few uh, thought experiments. One of these thought experiments was how bias could affect a robot peacekeeper or a robot police officer, which at the time you noted uh, could be especially challenging with tensions from police shootings of black people in Ferguson, because you wrote this in 2017 and elsewhere in this country. It's obviously not a new phenomenon, but since the murder of George Floyd, a larger swath of Americans seem to be paying attention to this. And you explore one idea that has a potential to help this litmus test for robotics. What is that, and how would that help make sure a robot police officer was treating all people fairly? Yeah, so um, the example of uh, a litmus test is basically like um, a truth serum, you know, if if something's going right or going wrong. So right now, uh, the way that AI was used in predictive policing was um, systems use historical data, and they identify hotspots, and then you deploy police officers to these hotspots to basically... um, be where the criminals might be before it happens or mm-hmm. while it's happening, right? Um, and so they, they've seen that this is systemic. It actually is, is, a, is not a good thing. Um, and so an example of a, of a litmus test would be, um, one, what would your human judgment be before you use the AI system, right? Like, let's look at your human judgment. Then let's look at the AI system, right? Like, which one, are, are they the same or are they different? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can do this in, in a couple of formats in a couple of ways. And so you can look at the judgment from current police officers. You can look at judgment from advocacy groups. You can look at judgment, right? Like from all these different constituents and mm-hmm. compare it to the AI system to see, you know, is, is there some type of convergence or is there some divergence? Um, you can do things like, does there seem to be a, a propensity for targeting, you know, one area of the city, as an example, um, but identifying this beforehand, because one of the things, because we overtrust these systems, once it produces its 
answer, we're more likely to believe it. But if we carve out kind of these parameters before we deploy the system, it's almost like, here's my hypothesis. Oh my gosh, my hypothesis is true. Therefore, the system is biased. And so it allows us to start also thinking a little bit more. Hmm. Um, are there other kinds of tools that you use in your research um, to mitigate bias? Yeah, so I am, and again, this is not, um, not everyone necessarily believes in this, but I actually believe that the diversity of individuals is actually unique and special. And we should make sure that we treat people based on their characteristics and parameters. Um, and so one of the things about uh, a lot of these AI systems is that they're generalized, right? So they have all of this data. They don't necessarily have characteristics between like age or gender or ethnicity. And so they just kind of learn learn a, a function, um, which means that they're going to be biased toward the majority of their data set. And those uh, attributes that are, are minority um, are going to be assumed by, by the general characteristics. Mm -hmm. So my thing is, is like, you know, lists, we are unique and we are different and we are diverse. And so why not just admit that and have the AI system um, have a additional filter for that. Uh, so we did it with respect to age is, is one of the examples. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the AI systems out there are not trained based on kids' data. Of course, like mm -hmm. most parents aren't putting out their kids' data online. Right. And so, I mean, it's just, you just don't do that. So what we did is we took um, a facial recognition algorithm that was already out there and uh, looked at how it did on kids. And it did horribly, by the way. <laughs> and so, I mean, of course, it wasn't trained on kids and, right. and their facial yeah. expressions. And so we basically added a specialized filter that basically said, um, after you go through this algorithm that's, that's there, um, you then parse it through this special filter if you have any indication that they belong to a kid's group. And you don't have to tell us the specific age. We don't want that knowledge because that was, we actually had to think about privacy, but just mm -hmm. let us know that, you know, in general, they're under the age of 18. Um, and what we were able to show was that our accuracy shot up just mm -hmm. by, and it was built on top of the generalized learner. So it's not that we're saying, pull all your systems back. Oh, it's, it's modular. It's modular, right? Which cool. also means that if I'm, you know, if I am um, a school teacher and I want to incorporate AI, well, most of my population is going to be kids. Let's add a specialized learner to whatever is out there. If I am in a hospital that's in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, let's add a specialized learner that um, understands the unique needs of that demographic that's built on top of the typical medical di diagnosis systems. Mm -hmm. um, so it allows us to then address the unique natures of our community. So the key here seems to be that whenever you have a first draft of an algorithm, especially if it's generalized, you just assume from the jump that it's biased and you're not surprised. Correct. You're not surprised. You, you're just going to assume because it's going to be biased. You just don't know toward whom. Okay, and so then you need to go back and kind of double check your answers and make sure that the outcomes are, are, are what you want it to be. Yes.
Well, Professor Howard, it's been a real treat talking with you. Thanks for spending the time with us, uh, you know, walking us through this important area of how robots actually affect our lives and making sure that they're having positive outcomes on them. Uh, where can people follow you online and find your work? Um, so the easiest is, of course, Twitter, Robot Smarts. I tend to post all the newest articles and, and studies off of Twitter. All right, Professor Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep wondering. Ever Wonder from the California Science Center is produced by me, Perry Roth Johnson, along with Jennifer Castillo. Liz Roth Johnson is our editor. Theme music provided by Michael Nicholas and Pond 5. We'll drop new episodes every other Wednesday. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review or tell a friend about us. Now, our doors may be closed, but our mission to inspire science learning in everyone continues. We're working hard to provide free educational resources online while maintaining essential operations like on-site animal care and preparing for our reopening to the public. Join our mission by making a gift at californiasciencecenter.org support.